In the beginning, there was work. God had his own work week and thus set a pattern for man's work week as well. When we work, we need to understand work is a God-like activity. When we work, we are imitating God. As we work with wisdom, we become imitators of our creator. It's a way that we manifest the image of God. If we're going to live as God designed us to live, barring illness or injury, we will work. It is our nature to be workers. Work is neither a necessary evil nor a punishment for sin. Rather, along with things like friendship and music and beauty, work is one of the key ingredients in a life well-lived. It gives direction and meaning and significance to our lives. All of our labors performed for God's glory and for the good of neighbor have dignity and worth. The good works we're called to do include our work, our daily work. In a fallen world, work is often dreary and difficult, yet even under such conditions, joy can be found in doing our job and doing it well. Work was blessed in the beginning, it's now cursed because of sin, and so we have a tendency to either reject work and become sluggards, or to idolize work and become workaholics, but in Christ Jesus, in the wisdom found in Christ Jesus, work can be restored to its proper place in our lives. There is certainly more to life than work, but life is ordinarily incomplete without work. The value of work, of course, goes far beyond whatever paycheck it might earn, and some of the most valuable work earns no paycheck at all. Uh, listen to how missionary and pastor Leslie Newbegin describes our work in the world as Christians. He says, the primary action of the church in the world is the action of its members in their daily work. It's as if we gather for worship and then we scatter for work. And this is the rhythm of the Christian life. But Newbigin points out that our priestly activity, which is concentrated here as we gather for worship, is not limited to that. In fact, work is every bit as much of a priestly activity for the Christian as worship. He says the priesthood of the people of God is to be exercised in the midst of the secular world of business, labor, politics, and culture. We're priests in here offering God a sacrifice of praise, but when we go out into the world, into our homes and into the culture, we're doing priestly work there, offering sacrifices to God in those places as well. But work is not only priestly, work is also kingly. Work is a major way we fulfill our mandate given to us in Genesis chapter 1 to subdue and rule the earth. Work is a kingly activity, an expression of our royal rule over the creation. In the beginning, God blessed the man and the woman, and he commissioned us as a race to subdue the earth and to fill it, to produce and to procreate, or to produce and reproduce. That's the mandate. And that mandate in Genesis 1 explains and defines human life. So that shows you how foundational and how fundamental work is. Work is how we exercise dominion over the creation, how we subdue the creation. We are stewards of God's world, entrusted with talents and resources. God has invested in us, and he expects a return on his investment. He expects us to leave the world better than it was when we entered it. 
We are to cultivate the creation, to transform it, to move it from one degree of glory to a greater degree of glory. See, God requires that we work. That is his command for us from the beginning. But God also requires that we work well, that we do our work with wisdom, that we do our work with excellence because we are working with him. God does all his works with wisdom. If our work is to imitate God's, we must do our work with wisdom as well. Certainly that's part of what Paul means in Colossians 3 when he says, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. Doing your work heartily from the heart means doing it with wisdom. And it's definitely what Solomon means in Proverbs 22 verse 29 when he says, do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before lowly men. Last week, I really focused on discipline as a key to productivity. The sluggard lacks discipline, and so instead of taking dominion over the earth, the earth takes dominion over him. This week, I want to focus on skill as a key to productivity. Solomon speaks of one who excels in his work. It could also be translated, do you see one who is skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. Do you see one who is competent in his work? Do you see one who does his work with excellence? That's the man who will be exalted to stand before kings. But what does that mean? What does it mean to do our work skillfully? It means we should strive to be the best we can be, to do the best we can do in our work. It's not enough to work or even to work hard. We must do our work with wisdom, with competence, with excellence, seeking to master our craft. You know, there's a lot of companies and corporations and sports teams that talk about pursuing excellence, but it's really Christians who should be at the forefront of pursuing excellence. Our work should be first rate. The quality of the work we do matters. This is something scripture calls attention to again and again. Sloppy, slipshod work is not worthy of the Christian because it's not worthy of the Christ we serve. In all our work, we're really working for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how Dorothy Sayers put it in her essay on work. Sayers says that when the church allows work and religion to become separate departments, when you separate out work from your religion. She says the result is secular work gets turned to selfish and destructive ends and workers become irreligious. Think about it. If you spend most of your week working and work has no connection to religion, no clear connection to your God, then religion has very little to do with your life. That means God has very little to do with your life. No, Sayer says work is a religious vocation. Sayers argues for what has been called a ministry of competence. God has a purpose in our work, and that purpose is realized as we do our work diligently and skillfully. Again, this is how Sayers describes it. She says, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him to not be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him as a carpenter is that he should make good tables. 
He should do his work, his craft with skill. Uh, Sayers goes on to say this habit of thinking about work as something one does to make money is so ingrained in us, we can scarcely imagine what a revolutionary change would take place if we learned to think about it instead in terms of the work done. She says to do so would mean taking the attitude of mind that we reserve for our unpaid work, things like hobbies and leisure interests, the things we make and do for pleasure, and make that the standard of all our judgments about things and people. And so she says we should ask of an enterprise, not will it pay, but is it good? Of a man, not what does he make, but what is his work worth? Of goods, not can we induce people to buy them, but are they useful things well made? Of employment, not how much a week, but will it exercise my faculties to the utmost? And shareholders in, let us say, brewing companies would astonish the directorate by arising at shareholders' meetings and demanding to know not merely where the profits go or what dividends are to be paid, not even merely whether the workers' wages are sufficient and the conditions of labor satisfactory, but loudly and with a proper sense of personal responsibility, they would want to know what goes into the beer. Are you making good beer? And then she summarizes it this way. She says, if work is to find its right place in the world, it is the duty of the church to see to it that the work serves God and that the worker serves the work. The worker must serve his work. That means we must be skillful workers which means we must study and practice. It means we must put in the effort to master our craft. We must pursue expertise. We must be skillful workers. Consider some of the ways skill is described in scripture. In Genesis, Esau was a skillful hunter. He might not have been a good man in a lot of ways, but he had skill as a hunter. In the book of Samuel, David is a skillful harpist. In 1 Chronicles, soldiers in Israel are called skillful in war. In 1 Chronicles, the Levites are described as skillful musicians. Solomon recruits skillful stonecutters, masons, carpenters, and craftsmen. It describes them as being skilled in working with gold and silver and bronze and iron, which are all necessary for Solomon's building project. In 1 Chronicles 25, there are Israelites who are skillful singers. In 2 Chronicles, there are inventors of machines, and we are told they were skillful in this work of inventing. They were skillful in developing technology. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 10, it speaks of those who skillfully made clothes. And on and on we could go. These, are, these passages are describing people who are good at what they do. They are good at their craft. And this is a model for us. Scripture calls us to skillful work. Indeed, we should strive to have a wide range of skills because skills are a form of wisdom. In a way, if you take inventory of the number of skills you have, the number of things you're competent at or good at, that's a way of measuring one aspect of wisdom. Not the only aspect of wisdom, but it's one aspect of wisdom. One of the best ways to enable yourself to work to the glory of God and for the good of your neighbor is to develop as many skills as possible. Stacking skills is one of the best ways to achieve success and make yourself useful. The more skills you develop, the more valuable you are. Uh, author Robert Heinlein 
came up with this list. He said every human should be able to do a wide number of things. He said every human should be able to change a diaper, plan an invasion, butcher a hog, steer a ship, design a building, write a sonnet, balance accounts, build a wall, set a bone, comfort the dying, take orders, give orders, cooperate, act alone, solve equations, analyze a new problem, program a computer, cook a good meal, fight efficiently, and die gallantly. He says specialization is for insects. Now, we might think his list is kind of odd. Maybe we could come up with a better list of skills for humans to master, for every human to know. And I actually think specialization has its place in life. I think it's a necessary part of life. But even as we become specialists in some area, we should also seek to be generalists with a wide array of skills. Scott Adams says, every skill you learn doubles your chance of success. Skills make you anti-fragile. Harder to cancel, which in this cancel culture world we live in, that can be a very important thing. Skills are a form of strength. To have a skill is to have real knowledge of how a real thing works. Skills are functional. Skills are a form of dominion. You know, that word from Genesis keeps popping up. Here it is again. Skills are a form of dominion. Dominion over self, because it takes some kind of discipline to learn a skill, but also dominion over the world. Skills involve developing our minds and our hands. Skills enable us to shape and subdue our piece of the creation, and skills are often the key to leadership. Becoming a good leader means having a wide array of skills. The more skills you develop, the closer you are to making excellence a habit in all of life. During World War II in the European theater, one advantage that American soldiers had over the Germans is that they were not professional soldiers. They were not specialists like the Nazis were. They were what Stephen Ambrose has called citizen soldiers. Most of these soldiers who went and fought were farmers, they were country boys, and they knew how to fix stuff when it broke. They had skills. And so for the Americans, when their equipment, their tanks and jeeps and whatnot broke down, they were resourceful, they were skilled, they weren't used to waiting around for somebody else to do the job for them. They got to work and they fixed what broke and they got moving again. Meanwhile, very often for the Germans, when they had a breakdown in their equipment, they tended to leave it behind or to wait until uh, an authorized repair person, a specialized mechanic got there to do the work. One problem we have in our modern education system is that it tends to pass along very few practical skills. And this combined with widespread fatherlessness that breaks down the transmission of skills from father to son have left us as a people who can do very little for themselves. Makes us vulnerable. Being a Christian does not automatically make you competent. It doesn't automatically make you good at what you do. You have to work at it. You have to put in the time and the energy to pursue excellence. But this is exactly what scripture calls us to do with all these models we have of skillful workers. With this proverb promising us that the skillful worker will stand before kings. That should be the goal. Christians should seek to exercise mastery. Because mastery is a manifestation of self-discipline and wisdom. This is what it means to see work as a holy 
endeavor, to understand that your work is your ministry. Again, it's not the whole of your ministry, but it's a key part of your ministry. Work is a form of worship. It's a form of prayer. Your work is your daily liturgy. And it is precisely for this reason it needs to be done with excellence. It needs to be done with excellence because it's a form of worship. When we do our work well, we are in God's presence. We need to understand we're always in God's presence. But because we're always in God's presence, God wants us to do our work well. When we are laboring day by day, we are doing so in God's presence. We're in God's house. The whole creation is God's house. This is God's palace, God's cosmic house. We're always working in God's house under God's watchful eye. And so we must learn to practice the presence of God, as Brother Lawrence famously put it, and do our work with excellence. You've heard me say it before. I'll say it again. The kitchen sink and the computer desk and the workshop can all become holy places where holy work is done because the holy God is with us. And this whole idea that some Christians have that if you want to really serve God, you've got to be a pastor or a missionary, that's just false. In fact, the ironic thing is that really reverts back to the way many Christians during the Middle Ages before the Reformation thought that in order to serve God, you've got to become a monk or a nun or a priest. You've got to leave the so-called secular world behind and enter one of these so-called secular vocations. It's not true at all. The Reformers recovered this view that all work has dignity and worth before God if it is performed with a view to his glory, if it is performed according to his word. Think how different this view of work is from the world's approach to work. So often in the world around us, people are simply trying to escape work as quickly as they can. The world says, let's work for the weekend. And so the world says, thank thank God it's Friday and I don't have to get up and go to work tomorrow. The world says things like this, joking about it. Work fascinates me. I could sit and watch it for hours. That's the mindset of the world. Or hard work might not kill me, but why take the chance? The world jokes about this because the world does not see work as something having worth and dignity in itself. Instead of saying with the world, thank God it's Friday, why not wake up tomorrow and say, thank God it's Monday? Another opportunity, another work week where you can pour yourself out in worshipful sacrifice to your God and loving service to your neighbor, another opportunity to fulfill God's calling on your life, to grow his kingdom, to advance his kingdom, as he uses your work to drive back the curse and to extend the dominion of his people over the earth and to implement Christ's reign in the world, to make the world a better place, more reflective of his truth, beauty, and goodness. Let me give you a couple examples of of excellence and skill and competency in work. The first one is, is one of my uh, favorites. This is Chuck Yeager, the American pilot who was the first to break the sound barrier and fly a jet at supersonic speed. Uh, he was a great pilot, a World War II ace who shot down five enemy planes on a single day. And of course, after World War II, he flew just about every experimental aircraft that this country dared to put in the air for the next 50 years. Now, his, 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 um, his flight in the Bell X-1 when he broke the um, sound barrier, that, that flight's well known. What's not as well known is that on his very next flight, he had a near disaster. His plane got dropped out of the 
B-29 uh, that had taken him up into the air. And as soon as his plane was released and was on its own, he had a complete electrical failure. No engine, no radio, nothing. Would have been catastrophic. But he lived to tell the story. You know why he lived to tell the story? Well, this is how Brian Matson describes it. He says, you know how Chuck Yeager survived his free fall in a fuel-bloated death trap? Craftsmanship. He had a few secrets, as he reveals in his autobiography. One of them was that he worked tirelessly to know everything there was to know about his aircraft. He knew his dependence on designers and engineers and mechanics. He wanted to know how every single thing worked, from the internal workings of the engine to the electrical systems. And of course, all of that came in handy. Chuck Yeager did not have the right stuff just because he was brave. He had it because he was a master of his craft, right down to the last literal nut and bolt. And that raises the obvious question, what is your craft? What are you called to do? What are you called to master? You have to understand, craftsmanship, excellence in work, is a Christian virtue. Here's another example. Uh, the Guinness Brewing Company. Uh, founded by Arthur Guinness in 1759. Uh, the, the Arthur, uh, Arthur Guinness was a man of faith. Uh, he wanted his faith to be reflected in the quality of what he produced. And so he was painstaking in his efforts to master the craft of brewing. And you can read all about this in uh, Stephen Mansfield's book, God and Guinness. Really good book, really interesting story. And if you want to know what a Christian business looks like, it's a great example of this. And he eventually, when he became very successful, uh, he, he, he really did start to use his influence in all kinds of ways with his workers, how he provided and cared for them, and in the world more generally. But listen to how it is described, how he mastered the art of brewing. That's how one account describes it. In Arthur's day, brewing was still an art, not a science. There were no laboratories to analyze samples of barley and hops. The brewer's eye was the only measuring tool. As to yeast, it's a living organism and a quick breeding one. And even now, with strict scientific control, it can develop a genetic mutation so inconvenient as to require the destruction of an entire batch. Arthur must have mastered all of these problems better than most. In particular, he was among the first Irishmen to become really good at producing the black porter. Once Arthur Guinness had cracked the technical problems and produced a porter as good as that which came from London, it was worth his while to concentrate on it. Soon the Irish product not only equaled the London porter, but surpassed it. After conquering the Dublin market, the Irish porter became in demand in Britain and then in the world. Arthur Guinness is a really good example of a man who did his work with excellence, with skill, and therefore who stood before kings. It's exactly what he did, exactly what happened in his life. That kind of example, that is what Dorothy Sayers would call serving the work. And this brings us to something else. Proverbs links skillful work with great reward. Work is a blessing, and work done well leads to blessing. Now, we know that the Proverbs that are given to us are not ironclad promises that describe what will happen in every single case, but the Proverbs do describe patterns in God's providence. And so to be blunt about it, Proverbs links work to wealth. 
Proverbs links work to glory. Just as Proverbs teaches that laziness will lead to poverty, so it teaches hard work and skillful work will lead to wealth. One of the best Proverbs about this is 14.23. In toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. In talk, Solomon says here, mere talk, in, in talking alone, there is poverty. Talking about work does not produce a profit. Talking about soil and seeds does not produce a crop. But Solomon says in toil, if you work, if you toil, and actually toil is that biblical word, is that word the Bible uses to describe work in a fallen world where we have to fight back the thorns and the thistles. When we toil, that will produce a profit. Toil leads to wealth. Now this is something we need to understand. Our culture today alternates between idolizing and demonizing success. In our culture, it's very common to resent the success of others and to demonize them. Think about the attacks on the rich and the one percenters. It's very common to demonize those who are successful until we experience success ourselves. And then we all too easily forget God in the midst of our prosperity and we idolize this prosperity that has been given to us. Proverbs gives us a very different view of success, neither rejecting it nor idolizing it. Proverbs views wealth as a blessing from God. And yes, there are dangers that come with it. There are temptations that come with it. There are responsibilities and obligations that come with it. But wealth in itself in the book of Proverbs is a blessing. And so we must avoid both the prosperity gospel, which treats wealth as something that God owes to the believer, as well as the poverty gospel that says all wealth is tainted because it must have come at someone else's expense. In Proverbs 14, 23, again, labor leads to profit. In labor and toil, there is profit. The wise worker not only works skillfully, but then he can enjoy the fruits of his labor with gratitude. And this is not only Proverbs, it's a, it's a key uh, part of the message in Ecclesiastes, which stresses enjoying the fruit of one's labor, enjoying the fruit of one's toil in this vaporous world. Prosperity that comes from work should not be guilt-inducing. So often that's the message you get even in the church, maybe especially in the church, that you should feel guilty for all you have. No, if it is the fruit of your labors, that prosperity should not be guilt-inducing, but gratitude-inducing, joy-inducing, Generosity-inducing? Proverbs does not shy away from the work and wealth connection. Proverbs says, all things being equal, if you work hard, if you work with wisdom and with excellence, yes, your, your worth, your, your wealth will grow. But there are other rewards for our labors that go beyond the monetary rewards, beyond earthly Wealth. Proverbs 22 really points us in this direction. There, the skilled worker, we're told, will stand before kings and not before obscure men. He'll be elevated to a place of glory. Excellence in work brings honor, it brings status, it brings recognition. Yes, it brings glory. All of these things are held out as things to strive for, as good things. But there's something even more than that. Something greater than standing before kings. Colossians 3 tells us Christ the king will reward our labors. The faithful worker 
will not only stand before kings, but before the king of kings. The faithful worker will offer all his works to the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus in turn will bestow a great reward on him, a reward of glory, a great inheritance. Paul says in Colossians 3, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, not to men. You're working for the Lord, not for men. And ultimately, it's the Lord who's going to pay you. It's the Lord who's going to compensate you. So give yourself totally to the task at hand. Do it with excellence. Work hard and work well. Why? Paul tells us because ultimately we are answering not to an earthly boss, but to a heavenly Lord. Ultimately, our reward comes not from the earthly boss, but from the heavenly king. And this is true no matter how trivial the work may seem, no matter how cruel or unreasonable your manager is or your boss, you can know that your work serves your heavenly Father and that you will be rewarded by the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul describes this as an eternal inheritance. That's the great reward held out to us. This reward, of course, has many facets, but part of it must include this. Your work will be redeemed your work will be brought into the new Jerusalem. Indeed, your work will in some way contribute to the glory of the new Jerusalem. I want you to think about this. When Paul says our work will be rewarded, what is he talking about? God did not command man in the beginning to cultivate the creation to take dominion over the earth, to, to build a civilization, to subdue and, re, and rule over the earth, just so that... At the end of history, he could gather all of that work that man has performed in subduing the earth and building a civilization so God could gather all that up and then throw it in his cosmic garbage can. No, God didn't command man to do this just so God can scrap it all at the last day. No, your earthly work done in history has eternal consequences for the new creation. We can scarcely fathom what this means, but again and again, the scriptures show us the treasures of the nations, that is, the fruit of their faithful labors, fulfilling the creation mandate, the treasures of the nations being brought into the new Jerusalem. That's one of the great passages in Epiphany, Isaiah chapter 60, that describes how the treasures of the nations we brought into the kingdom of Christ. You have a, a, a first fruits of that when the Gentile wise men bring their gifts, their cultural treasures, and offer them to the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's what's going to happen in its fullness at the last day in the resurrection. The fruits of our labors will be offered to Christ and somehow woven into and incorporated into the kingdom in its final and eternal form. This is how Christopher Wright describes it. I, I, I love this. Uh, Christopher Wright lives in England near the British Library. And listen to how he describes this. He says, this British Library is one of my favorite places to go. It has hundreds of miles of shelves deep underground housing millions of books, many going back to the days when books were first invented. It houses the accumulated learning, wisdom, wit, and literature of multiple human civilizations and languages, and that's only a fraction of what the whole world's libraries and museums include. I sometimes sit there and think, how many lifetimes would I need to ever absorb and enjoy the treasures of this place alone? And what will happen to all of this cultural achievement, the labor of lifetimes of generations of human beings made in God's image when Christ returns? Will it all simply be obliterated, extinct in an instant, lost and forgotten for all eternity? 
I cannot believe that is the plan of God. I don't understand how God will enable the wealth of human civilization to be redeemed and to be brought into the city of God in the new creation, but the Bible says that's what will happen. I don't imagine it will be a matter of dusty old books anymore than I will be there in my dusty old body, but I know I will be there in the glory of a resurrection body as the person I am and have been, but redeemed, rid of all sin, and raring to go. So I believe there will be some comparable resurrection glory for all that humans have accomplished in fulfillment of the creation mandate, redeemed but real. He goes on, he says, we sometimes lament the lost civilizations of past millennia, civilizations we can only partially reconstruct from archaeological remains or in epic movies. But if we take the Bible seriously, they are not lost forever. The kings and nations who will, be, who will bring their glory into the city of God will presumably not be limited only to those who happen to be alive in the generation of Christ's return. Who can tell what nations will have risen or fallen or what civilizations will have become lost by then, like the, like the lost civilizations of previous millennia? No, the promise spans all ages, all continents, and all generations in human history. He goes on, he says, think of the prospect, all human culture, language, literature, art, music, science, business, sport, technological achievement, actual and potential, all of it available to us. All of it with the poison of evil and sin sucked out of it forever. All of it glorifying God. All of it under his loving and approving smile. All of it for us to enjoy with God and indeed being enjoyed by God and all eternity for us to explore it, understand it, appreciate it, and expand it. Okay, that is a glorious vision of the future and a glorious vision uh, of what your work in the here and now is contributing to the life of the world to come. God is saving not just human souls, but bodies too. And not just humans, but creations and cultures. That is the glorious vision of the new creation. God will make the work of our hands to stand forever. That was the prayer of the psalmist. God is going to answer it. And so as Paul says in that great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul gives his most elaborate teaching and defense of the future resurrection of the body at the last day, how does Paul apply that truth that you will be raised up at the last day? How does he apply that truth at the end of the chapter? Paul says, take heart, for your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Why? Because a resurrection is coming. And, and, and when God raises up your body, he's going to raise up your life's work as well in some way. And so the work you do in this body, in this life, will be brought into the new creation and will be glorified and will contribute to its glory in some way. The fruits of your life's labor will not be lost. The fruits of your life's labor will be resurrected along with you. God is going to pay you for all the work you've done. He's going to pay you in eternity because you did what he wanted. You worked to subdue and rule and fill the earth to his glory. Of course, those who do evil, the, the sluggards, the, the lazy people, those who reject the creation mandate, those who seek to make their living through fraud and violence and theft rather than hard work, providing for themselves, they'll be repaid too, Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 25, but with a very different kind of currency. Payment's coming for them as well, but it's going to look very different. 
the work that produces an eternal reward, the work that's going to be woven into the new creation in its final form may seem totally ordinary, earthy, mundane. But through that work that you do, as you do it cheerfully, faithfully, skillfully, you are stockpiling treasure in heaven. You're, you're, you're building glory that will be brought into the new Jerusalem at the last day. You're doing work that in some way contributes to the building of the final new Jerusalem, the kingdom in its final and glorious resurrection form. Maybe the best way to capture this is with a story. And the best story I know of about this is J.R.R. Tolkien's Leaf by Niggle. That's the name of the story, Leaf by Niggle. You may have heard me talk about this before, but it's, it's worth coming back to because it's so good. And I'll give you a very abbreviated version here. Niggle is the main character in the story, and he is a painter. And his life's hope is to paint a tree. He has this vision of a tree he wants to paint, and this is his life's goal, is to paint this tree. That's his life's work. And he does get to work on it, but he keeps getting interrupted. He often gets interrupted by a sick friend named Parrish, and I think that name is uh, significant. But Parrish needs help constantly, and so Niggle keeps having to put his paintbrush down and go help Niggle. And all Niggle really ever gets to paint of this tree he's envisioned is one leaf. There finally comes a point where Parrish insists that Niggle go out into the rain and cold to go find a doctor who can come help Parrish. And Niggle ends up catching cold. And we're told that day comes for Niggle to take his final journey. This is death. And so he has to leave his unfinished picture behind. But when Niggle enters into the new creation, the heavenly world, the new heavens and the new earth, what does he find? As soon as he gets there, there's something that catches his eye, and so he runs to it. And what does he see? He sees that tree he had envisioned. All he ever got to paint was a leaf. But now that leaf has become the full-grown tree. And it's not just a painting anymore. It's a real tree. It's become a reality, a part of this new creation, this heavenly world, and it's there for him to enjoy forever. Here's the point. Obviously, Tolkien was writing in an autobiographical way. He had his life's work that he wanted to complete. He knew he would never finish it in this life. He wrote this story to encourage himself. But this is what you need to understand. What happened with Nichols' painting of a leaf is going to happen with all of your life's work as well. Your life's labors may be just a tiny leaf and nothing more. Maybe you only accomplish a tiny fraction of the things you're hoping to do with your life. Maybe you can't get it all done. Your work keeps getting interrupted. But understand, your life's labors will be glorified in ways you can hardly even imagine in the world to come. Isn't that an exciting and even exhilarating vision of your daily work and what it contributes to? And all of that is yours in Christ Jesus. God has done his work skillfully. God has done his work with wisdom. We're to do the same as imitators of God. And just as God took delight in his own work in the creation week, he took great delight on the seventh day of what he had created in the six previous days in the same way. We can take great delight in our work 
Indeed, we will get to see our work glorified at the last day. God will take great delight in it. We can take great delight in it too. That's the vision God gives us of work. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.